Let me encourage you to turn your Bible to the 85th Psalm. We have been, as you know, working through the book of Luke, but for two straight weeks now, I felt like the Lord was preventing me from finishing out Luke chapter 5 and had other things for us to think on and other places in the scripture for us to worship from. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the 85th Psalm, and I want to read it to you in its entirety. Psalm 85 is entitled, For the Choir Director, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. O Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the captivity of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned away from your burning anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what the Lord God will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will make his footsteps into a way. Father, we pray that righteousness would go before you this morning. God, that glory would again dwell in our land. Not just our geographic land, but in um, this um, parcel that you call your own, your church, your people. Called by your own name. Set apart to be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Set apart as a kingdom and priest to our God. God, we pray that you would revive us again, that you would cause glory to dwell in your land, in our hearts, in our homes, in this family of believers and spreading out from us to this neighborhood and this city and even to the ends of the earth. Get glory for yourself and for your son, we pray from Psalm 85 today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We read the entire psalm. I just want to focus really this morning on one verse, really just one half of one verse. That is verse 6 and the first half particularly. Will you not yourself revive us again? It's a prayer. Will you, God, not yourself revive us again? The whole psalm really is a prayer for revival. It is a prayer that God would breathe new life into his people. It is a prayer that God would forgive their sins. Verse 5, it's a prayer that God would restore to them the joy of their salvation. Verse 6b, it's a prayer that God would make them, verse 8, who they ought to be for his glory. It's a prayer that God would, in verse 9, cause his glory to dwell in their land. I hope you can already identify with some of those requests. God, forgive me. Help me to be who I ought to be. Restore to me the joy I had when I was first a believer. 
cause the glory to dwell among your people again, that the nations would be attracted to us and to our God. The whole psalm is a prayer for revival, but verse 6a is really the touchstone. Will you not yourself revive us again? And so I want to look at those words. I want to look at that simple petition. And I want to tell you why we're looking at that petition and why we are staying away from the book of Luke for another week. And the reason is because uh, as I thought about this morning and our church and my life and, and our surroundings in general, I sensed a need that we would go here to this place. This is a verse that I've known um, and it came to mind this week as I prayed about this morning. I sense a need that we would begin to pray this prayer earnestly. Not that just that we would say these seven or eight English words, but that we would really understand what the psalmist is asking and why we need to pray it, and that we might begin to pray it with earnestness. I sense a need, first of all, just in our nation. I'm sure you can look around, tell that, Biblical Christianity is rapidly shrinking and, and becoming almost extinct. Biblical Christianity. All the, the clever marketing strategies that we can come up with may stave things off for a while, but really in the end, you just read the surveys and churches by and large are just transferring members. The number of Christians in our country is shrinking. And it's not because there's something wrong with the gospel And it's not because the people in our culture are too bad to be saved by God's grace. The reason the churches are shrinking, the problem that's causing the churches to shrink is within the church. The church is not alive as it once was. The church is not the salt and the light in the world that it once was in our nation. And so... For the sake of Christianity, for the sake of Christ in our nation, in our city, we need as Christians to begin to pray, will you not yourself revive us again? But more than that, much more than that, I am going here this morning because I sense a congregational need. I sense a need in here, not just out there, but in here. That God would bring to light and cause us to confess and that God would forgive hidden sins that some of us are harboring, that God would sweep away old habits that some of us have held on to for years and years and years and know that we should let them go but won't, that God would repair fractured relationships, relationships that some of us know need to be repaired and situations where some of us know we need to go and make things right. And we haven't and we won't. And we need God to do that. A need that God would make us who we ought to be. And that glory would dwell in his land, in this parcel of people, this group of people that he has called his very own. A holy nation, this little clan. That God would make us a people of prayer as a congregation, that God would make us a people of vibrant witness, both with our lips and with our lives, that God would make us a people hungry for his word. And as I thought about that this week, and as I read what God has done in the past, and as I looked at my life, and as I looked at us and prayed about us, I have to say to myself, honestly, we're not those things as a whole. There's some notable exceptions among us, 
people who are seeking the Lord with all their hearts. But I think most of us would say, I'm not the person of prayer that I want to be. I don't pray like I should. I don't hunger for God's Word. I read it, but I'm not sure that I'm really hungry for it. I know some people that I want to see come to Christ, but I've been afraid to talk to them, or when I have talked to them, my actions have betrayed my witness. I think we need God to breathe fresh life into us. And, and I, I, I bring us to Psalm 85.6 finally because of a sense of a personal need in my own life. I think about this subject of revival often. And I'm amazed at what God has done, and I'm amazed at what God can do, And I find myself thinking this would be wonderful. And then I find myself in the same breath thinking, but I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I'm ready for God to answer this prayer in me. I'm not sure if I'm ready to make the adjustments that I will have to make if God comes in power and begins to change us rapidly and make us whom we ought to be. And so for myself and for our church and for our city and for our nation and for the nations, I sense that the church, not just this church, but the church at large, really needs God to breathe on us a breath of fresh air. We need God to revive us again. So whether or not this morning you're ready to pray that way, and I hope that you will be before we leave, whether or not you're ready to pray that way and for God to do those things in you, I hope that at least you will give ear to the psalmist cry. Listen to what he prays as he says, Will you not yourself revive us again? And so what I want to do this morning is simple. I just want to take that one half of one verse, the psalmist's prayer in verse 6a, and unpack it, make four observations concerning his request. And I want to illustrate what he's asking from history. I thought the best way for me to to figure out what he's praying and to try to help you see what he's actually asking for and what that might look like in us would be for us to look at times in history where God's people have prayed this kind of prayer incessantly, repeatedly, fervently, and God has answered. What does that look like when God answers this kind of prayer? And I want to share with you some of those. Some of you have seen this book. Some of you have read this book, uh, Revival by Brian Edwards. It's just an account of how God has answered this kind of prayer throughout history. And I'm going to share with you several paragraphs and passages from what God has done in history as people prayed Psalm 85, 6 and passages like it. And finally, I'm going to hope that the Lord will send fire from heaven and take this little bundle of sticks that I've prepared this morning and set it aflame in your heart for His glory. So that verse 11, glory may dwell in our land. So what is the psalmist really asking? Four things. Number one, it's a prayer for revival. Obviously, right? That's what he says. Will you not yourself revive us? Again, a prayer for revival. The question is, what does that mean? What is revival? So I have four points, but this first one is probably going to take at least half of the rest of our time because I want you to understand and I want you more than that to feel what the psalmist means and what I mean when I say we need revival. Let me tell you, first of all, what revival is not in biblical terms. Revival is not a series of weeknight evangelistic meetings as an attempt to reach the unchurched. Now, that's not a bad thing. 
could be a wonderful thing when we hold meetings as an attempt to reach the unchurched. And we've come to call that revival because in times past it has been sometimes in those kinds of meetings that God has come and revived his people. But when we speak about revival, that's not specifically what the psalmist has in mind. It's not what history has in mind. It's not what I have in mind. Revival is not about so much reaching the unchurched, at least initially. Things will spill over onto them as God works. But revival is something that happens to God's people. And you can see that in this psalm. He says, revive us again. This is an Israelite writing after God's people had come back from exile, writing on behalf of God's people and saying, God, we don't want you so much yet to work in the Assyrians, though we'd be glad about that. We don't want to see you work in Babylon, though we'd be thrilled about that. But what needs to happen first is that we who are called by your name, we need you to revive us. It's us that is the problem. It's us that got ourselves into the mess. It's us that's supposed to be reaching the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the rest of the world. And it's us, therefore, who needs a breath of fresh air. He says, revive us. So when we think about revival this morning, we're not thinking about holding a campaign for evangelism. We're thinking about us and God changing us. And that's why the word is revive. It's not Vival, that God would give life to those people who don't have life. It's revival. And if it's revival, you have to have life before you can be revived. So revival is about people who have life. People who have come to Christ but haven't been all that they should be. Perhaps their love has grown cold. Perhaps they've just never grown the way they should. Perhaps they are growing, but there are some areas in their life that they haven't let go of yet. And they need a breath of fresh air. They need God to breathe new life into them. So don't confuse the idea this morning of revival with an evangelistic campaign or even evangelistic success. Evangelistic success often happens as a result of revival in God's people, but revival is for people who already have life. So it's not it's not evangelism, it's something else. So what is it? I've already been hinting at it. It's something that happens to us. And revival, if I could just just define it in a sentence, is a season in which God fills an entire community of believers with His Spirit. A season. It doesn't last forever, but a season in which God fills an entire community of believers with His Spirit. That's what this psalmist is asking for. Now you will notice when you read the book of Acts that on occasions various individuals are filled with the Spirit. Filling with the Spirit is something that happens to someone who is already a believer and God comes in, a, in an unusual way and refreshes them by His Spirit, recharges them for service, recommits them to holiness, renews them in their desire for spiritual things. And everything in a moment doesn't change, but everything in a moment kind of crystallizes and becomes what it has been trying to be all along. When that happens to an individual, we call it someone being filled with the Spirit. We may not use that terminology, but we've seen that happen in individuals where all of a sudden there's just this, this coming of God into their lives in unusual ways, sometimes with emotion, sometimes not, but where their, their walk with God is changed. Filling with the Spirit when it's an individual. When it happens over a prolonged season to an entire church or community, historically it's usually called an awakening or a revival. And usually... These times of refreshing, by definition, come after an extended period of 
spiritual drought. That's why you need revival, because there's been spiritual drought. There's been spiritual winter where people, and these are all good things, but where people come to church because it's habit. It's my family. That's where I go. Where people read their Bibles because they're supposed to, which is a good thing. Where people pray because they ought to, which is a good thing. Where people sing because that's what the bulletin says we're going to do, and maybe they even sing well. But there can come a place in our spiritual life in in these winter seasons where our spiritual joints are moving, but they're moving slowly and with difficulty. And in revival, when God comes in this way, winter turns to spring and the flowers of faith seem to bloom almost overnight and the joints move again and we begin to run again toward Jesus. So revival is when God breathes new life into what has become old and stale routine. It's not that he adds something new to the routine. It's not that he adds something new to religion. We do the same things as we did before. Acts 2.42, we're still dedicated to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. But in revival, these old and biblical things are now done with new vigor and new joy and new commitment and even new success and new life. That's what I'm talking about this morning. That's what I sense that we need. That's what the psalmist is asking for in Psalm 85, 6. New life breathed into us. And so just to kind of get you a picture, I said I don't want you just to understand definitions, but to feel what I hope God might do and you might begin to pray for. I want to just walk back through those four things I just mentioned from Acts 2.42, those normal activities of the church, dedication to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, and how God reinvigorates those things in our lives, helps us recommit to them. I want to just show you how that has happened in the past, as God has not added new things to His church, but breathed life into the same things that they've always been doing and doing rightly. So, Revival is characterized by a renewed joy in the apostles' teaching, in the Bible. A renewed joy, a renewed desire for God's Word. Some of you may already sense that you need that. Maybe you've been sensing that before you ever came in this morning. And God can give it to you. Not by you pulling up your bootstraps, but by you praying, God, revive me. Give me a new desire for your Word. Listen to how it happened in Wales in 19. 19- 31. Martin Lloyd-Jones was minister in Aberavon, Wales, when God came in revival to the church in 1931. The description is typical of what takes place in revival. It was, quote, the eagerness with which the congregations gathered that impressed one observer. On a Sunday evening, the building would start to fill as much as an hour before the 6.30 hour of service, with sometimes not even a seat remaining empty by 6 p.m., The Monday and Wednesday meetings had both to be removed to the church itself on account of the numbers attending. In other words, they were meeting in someone's living room and they said, we've got to go to the auditorium. So many people wanted to come, hear God's word. Shopkeepers would arrive straight from their businesses without an evening meal. Night shift workers due to report for work at 8.30 p.m. would come in their work clothes, preferring to miss part of the meeting rather than the whole. People showing up an hour before to make sure that they got there in time to get a seat to hear God's 
word. Now, what was not happening was Lloyd-Jones was not doing anything different than he'd been doing before. He was still preaching the same sermons. He was still telling the same old, old story of Jesus and his love. But somehow, probably in response to praying people, the Holy Spirit had come and breathed a new hunger into this congregation for the good news, for the word of God, for the apostles' teaching, so that they could not wait to get there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Wednesday night, four times a week, they were coming to hear God's Word. Not falling asleep in the middle, but coming to hear God's Word and eager to be there. In revival, that's what happens. People have renewed joy in the apostles' teaching. You want that for yourself? I I don't know where you are, but I'm not content with the joy and the hunger that I have for God's Word. And I need to pray, O Lord, will you not yourself revive me again? Revival is characterized by new joy, secondly, in the fellowship of God's people. Acts 2.42, they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And when God comes and breathes new life into His people, they are recommitted to the fellowship. They are recommitted to the people of God. And it's, again, not necessarily that new activities are added to the church or that new people yet are added to the church. The people just have a renewed sense of gladness to be in the house of God with the people of God or to be in someone's living room for the prayer time or to be in one another's homes for dinner or to be at the service project together or whatever it may be. They're just thrilled to be together with God's people. Let me give you another example from the United Kingdom. Joseph Kemp, the pastor of Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, visited Wales in 1905. There was a revival going on in Wales at that time. When he reported what he had seen to his own congregation, it was evidently the singing that impressed him greatly. In Wales, I saw people that had learned to sing in a way which to me was new. I never heard such singing as theirs. They sang such old familiar hymns as When I Survey the Wondrous Cross There is a fountain filled with blood, and I need thee, oh, I need thee. They needed no organist or choir leader. Their singing was natural. The Holy Ghost was in their singing as much as in any other exercise. They had the new song. People tell us our religion is joyless. Well, if the saints of the living God have no joy, who has? Jesus Christ has given us to see that joy is one of the qualities he imparts to the saints of God. The world knows nothing of it. When a revival from God visits a congregation, it brings with it joy. These people were happy in Jesus, happy to be together, and it told in their singing. It's amazing. So that worship and fellowship was no longer just part of the routine that they did. It was the highlight of the week. And in revival, people find renewed joy in fellowshipping with one another, talking about the things of God, praying together, singing together. Do you have joy in those kinds of things? Just gathering with people to sing and praise the Lord and talk about the Lord. Revival is characterized by a new joy in the simple gospel. The apostles' teaching, Acts 2, fellowship, the breaking of bread, which was the Lord's Supper, which we participated in today, which is a symbol of the simple message that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us so that our sins might be forgiven and we might have new life in him. And in revival, people are recommitted to that old, old thing that the early church thought so important. In revival, these old, 
beliefs and interests, this old center point of the church, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is renewed and refreshed and reinvigorated. And revival people return to the centrality of Jesus and him crucified. This is one reason why I'm concerned for our church because I still hear so many. I hear many of you speaking much and often about Jesus, but I hear so many of you who are afraid to say his name. Someone accepted the Lord or prayed to God or and Jesus name is never mentioned. Now, maybe you mean Jesus when you say the Lord, but I I don't doubt that many of you have this strange aversion that you can't even explain and that maybe is even subconscious and you never even thought about it until now, but you listen to yourself talk and pray and Jesus is not there. And I wonder about that. Is religion just about morals or being a good person? No. It's about Jesus. Is religion about being really interested in the end times or being really interested in raising a godly family or being really interested in music or whatever it may be. No. It's about Jesus. And so we need to begin to pray, if we're believers, that God might restore to us this thrill in Jesus that we had when we first believed. When you first believed, you knew that it was about Jesus who died for you. And in revival, people longed to hear about him. Listen to how a German man, Nicholas von Zinzendorf, described the revival in Germany in 1727, describing the preaching. Our method in proclaiming salvation is this, to point out to every heart the loving lamb who died for us, and although he was the son of God, offered himself for our sins as his mediator between God and man, his throne of grace, his example, his savior, his brother, his preacher of the law, his comforter, his confessor, in short, his all in all. By the preaching of his blood and of his love unto death, even the death of the cross, never, this is the vow they made, never, either in the discourse or in the argument, in other words, even either as they explained the Bible or as they tried to preach the Bible, neither in the discourse or the argument to digress even for a quarter of an hour from the loving Lamb to name no virtue except in him and from him and on his account, to preach no commandment except faith in him, no other justification but that he atoned for us, no other sanctification but the privilege to sin no more, no other happiness but to be near to him, to think of him and do his pleasure, no other self-denial but to be deprived of him and his blessing, no other calamity but to displease him, no other life but in him. Him, 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 him. A hundred times him, he says. It's about him. And as God breathes new life into us, we will remember again the way it was when we first believed, when it was all about him. And we will long to speak about him. Listen to what happened in New England just a few years later when Jonathan Edwards wrote of the revival in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1733. He described the centrality of Christ and the cross in the lives of the people In all companies, he said, on other days or whatever occasions persons met together, Christ was to be heard of and seen in the midst of them. Our young people, when they met, were wont to spend the time in talking of the excellency and dying love of Jesus Christ, the glory of the way of salvation, the wonderful, free and sovereign grace of God, his glorious work 
in the conversion of a soul and the truth and centrality of the great things of God's word. Even the young people said, we want to talk about Jesus. And in revival, people gain a renewed joy in the simple message of Jesus and him crucified. Still under this first point, this is a prayer for revival. One last thing to say about it. In revival, people find renewed joy and urgency in prayer. People want to pray when God breathes new life into them. They don't avoid prayer. They don't avoid people who are praying. They want to pray. Listen just to two examples. Wales, 1904. One of the great marks of the 1904 revival in Wales was the meetings for prayer. And perhaps one of the most moving descriptions came from a reporter in the Western Mail, that's a newspaper, of the prayer meetings deep underground in the coal pits. In the coal pits, in the coal mines. The workmen on the night shift had gone down a half an hour earlier than usual time. This is from the newspaper. So as not to interfere with the operations of the pit. Seventy yards from the bottom of the shaft, in the stables, we came to the prayer meeting. One of the workmen was reading the sixth chapter of Matthew to about 80 comrades. He stood erect amongst the group, reading in a dim, fantastic light that danced with swinging lamps and vanished softly into surrounding darkness. A number of lamps were attached to a heavy post closely wedged to support the roof, and around the impressive figures, the colliers grouped themselves, earnest men, all of them, faces that bore the scars of the underground toiler, downcast eyes that seemed to be the homes of silent prayer. Strong frames that quivered with a new emotion. They got to work early so that without interrupting their work, they could pray together. Eighty of them, 70 yards down underground in the coal mine. Scotland, one year later, 1905. There's hardly a more powerful description of the part that prayer plays both before and during revival than that given by Joseph Kemp. Revival had come to Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh in 1905, and two years later, the church was still in the full experience of it. The members had prayed urgently for revival when their pastor returned from Wales in 1905. And when it came, came, even that insistent prayer was transformed. And here's what the pastor says. What can I say about our prayer meetings? Did ever anyone see such meetings? They used to begin at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings, but that was felt to be far too late in the day for the great business that had to be transacted before the throne of heavenly grace. The meetings now begin at 6 o'clock and go on for almost seven days a week. Some of you who are strangers may smile. Many of us did, but we don't now. It is that continuous, persevering, God-honoring weekly campaign of prayer that has moved the mighty hand of God to pour upon this favored people the blessings of His grace in such rich abundance. And if ever you should be asked the secret of this church's great spiritual prosperity, you can tell them of the prayer meetings and especially of the gatherings of God's people, 40 to 60 strong, in the upper vestry every Sunday morning at 6 or 7 o'clock, summer and winter, wet day and fine, to pray. Yes, that is the secret the secret of our church's success and prosperity. It wasn't that, that Joseph Kemp, the pastor, said, now we need to have more people in the prayer meeting. It was that God came and people just started showing up to pray together in numbers that had been unknown to them. And in revival, there comes a renewed joy and urgency about prayer. 
I share all these examples with you simply to show you what the psalmist is asking for in Psalm 85, verse 6, when he says, Will you not revive us again? He was not asking God to do something new that they hadn't seen before. He wasn't asking God to change their circumstances. He was just saying, God, take the life that's in us and expand it. Put air in our lungs again so that we can breathe deeply and feel deeply and love deeply. He was asking God that he would bring about scenes like the ones I've been reading. God, will you not pour out your streams on our dry ground? Will you not refresh us? Will you not renew our delight in and dedication to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer? And I need to pray like that for myself. I told you, I I think about these things and I say, yes, that's what we need. And then I think about praying for myself and asking God, am I willing to be who God might make me to be if he would answer this prayer? And I'm not always so sure. But I need to be. And we need to be. Lord, will you not restore unto us the joy that we had when we first believed, the eagerness, the zeal? That's what the psalmist is asking. Now, Three other observations about what the psalmist is asking much more briefly. First, it was a prayer for revival. But secondly, it was a prayer for faith, a prayer of faith, a prayer of faith. Now, notice how the psalmist phrases his request. Will you not yourself revive us again? Will you not? That's stronger than simply saying, will you? Right. Will you not is stronger than will you? He's not saying, will you revive us again, although that's a good prayer. He's saying, will you not revive us again? And there's a difference. It's the difference between a wife saying to her husband, will you buy me some flowers? And saying, will you not buy me some flowers? Won't you at least get me some roses for Valentine's? Is that asking too much? That's what will you not means. It's much stronger than simply will you. When you begin a question with will you not, or we would say, won't you, Won't you do this? Won't you do that? What you're implying when you begin a question that way is that you'll be keenly disappointed if the answer is no. What you're implying when you begin a question with won't you is that this person should know that the obvious answer to the question is yes. Won't you please go to church with me? Won't you just quit drinking? Won't you get me some flowers? It almost has the force. This, this request almost has the force of saying, I don't see any good reason why you wouldn't. I don't see any good reason why you wouldn't come to church, why you wouldn't quit drinking, why you wouldn't buy me the flowers. And the psalmist is saying basically to God, I'm not trying to be in your face, God, but I don't see why you wouldn't do this. Of course you want to revive us again. So will you not? Won't you? I don't see, I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't answer this prayer, God. Your character and your promises would almost seem to demand that you would want to bless your people and pour out your spirit upon them. The psalmist is praying with faith, with confidence. He is practically insisting that God should answer. He's doing it contritely, he's doing it humbly, but he is almost insisting because he believes that God wants to answer. And we need to pray this way. We need to pray this way in general about things that we know God wants, but we need to pray this way specifically, this prayer, will you not yourself revive us again? God, 
I don't see any good reason why you wouldn't revive us. No, we don't deserve it, but none of your blessings are based on what we deserve. Your faithfulness is what we're leaning on. Your promises are what we're leaning on. Your zeal for your own glory, God, practically demands that you would come and do something because you deserve to be glorified in Cincinnati and in our homes, and it's not happening the way it ought to. And so because you deserve it and it's not happening, surely you'll answer. Surely you will answer. He's praying with faith like that. Let me just read to you the example of another man who prayed with faith like that. This is from Scotland, 1949. Again, in the midst or just on the cusp of a time when God came in amazing power among his people through the preaching of a man named Duncan Campbell. Duncan Campbell describes a prayer meeting in one village. There had been bitter opposition in the village, and although many attended the meetings from other areas, very few locals attended because of the opposition of the minister. They were having um, meetings for prayer and preaching, um, praying that God would pour out His Spirit, and one of the local ministers said, we're not doing that. We're not participating in that. So a church leader suggested they should go to prayer, and 30 or so moved into the home of a friendly farmer. Prayer was hard. Just note that prayer was hard. It often is hard work. Prayer was hard, and about midnight, Duncan Campbell turned to the local blacksmith who had been silent so far and said, I feel the time has come when you ought to pray. The man prayed for about half an hour because in revival time doesn't matter, and then drew his prayer to a close with a bold challenge. God, do you not know that your honor is at stake? You promised to pour floods on dry ground and you're not doing it. He paused for a while and then concluded, God, your honor is at stake and I challenge you to keep your covenant engagements. At that moment, Duncan Campbell recalls the whole granite house shook like a leaf. And while one elder thought of an earthquake, Campbell was reminded of Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Duncan Campbell pronounced the benediction and they went outside. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning and they found the whole village alive, ablaze with God. Men and women were carrying chairs and asking if there was room for them in the church. We may not feel comfortable with that old blacksmith's wording, I challenge you. I don't know that I would word it that way. I might word it the way the psalmist words it. Won't you? Will you not? I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't. But don't miss this old blacksmith spirit. He knew that God had promised to pour out streams on dry ground when his people pray. And he knew that the Lord wasn't getting the honor that he deserved in their community. He knew his honor was at stake in the people's lack of zeal. And he prayed with faith. And God will answer when we pray with faith day and night. Oh Lord, will you not yourself revive us again? Thirdly, the psalmist's prayer was a historically informed prayer. It was a prayer of faith. It was a prayer informed by history. Notice carefully what he says. Will you not yourself revive us again? Again. The psalmist is not asking God to do something that he's never done before. He's asking him to do something again. In fact, in verses 3, he tells us that he's remembering God's mighty deeds of the past when God brought back the Israelites from their captivity in Babylon. And apparently this is some time after that and there had grown to be a lull in the people's zeal. 
And so he's saying, God, you brought us back. You put songs of joy in our mouths. We rebuilt the walls. We were zealous. We were excited. Do that again. Do that again. That's why his faith was so strong. Because he knew that God had done this in the past. That's why he was almost insisting that God revive the people. Because he knew his history. He knew that God had done it before. And this is why we've taken the time this morning to read several of these little excerpts from history to give you an idea from our English-speaking culture even, from the last 200 years even, what God has done and what God can do and what God may yet do again if we will join the psalmist in praying, God, you've done it before. Will you not yourself revive us again? My goal this morning has simply been to whet your appetite that God would do it again. And to help you, I hope you'll bear with me as I read you one more account from God's dealings with his people in the past. This one a little bit longer, but just to give you an overall picture of what it may look like. This is the story of a man named John Powell Perry who lived in Wales in 1904 during that revival that we read about a few minutes ago. In 1904, Ross was a Welsh-speaking mining town with few English people living there. Almost every man worked down the mines and Powell Perry himself was working underground by the age of 14. Wages were poor and life was hard. The boys working a nine and a half hour shift for three shillings were working a nine hour shift for three shillings a day. There was little social concern for the conditions of the people and drink was a widespread social evil. The revival in Ross started quite unexpectedly in the Welsh Baptist Chapel where Reese Bevan Jones from South Wales had been invited to conduct a mission, a series of, of evangelistic meetings. The first knowledge that Powell Perry had about the revival came as he returned home early one morning at the close of the night shift. A young man told him that something wonderful was happening at Penuel Chapel, and as Powell came near the church, it was evident that something remarkable was going on. And this is when people are getting off in the morning, and this is already happening in the morning. In the church, people were rejoicing and it was bursting out of the walls and into the streets. The people were going out of the church singing about the Lord. Revival spread rapidly through the whole town until every church was affected. The Methodist, Congregationalist, Salvation Army, Church of England and Baptists were all caught up in the great wave of revival so that denominationalism disappeared. And you could enter any church in the town and find crowds of people at prayer. There was a great harmony in the town. This was a revival of praise and thanksgiving in which people learned to enjoy God. There was a life and reality about everything that was done in the churches. People were involved with eternal issues and things didn't seem to matter anymore. On Sundays, the chapels were full by six in the morning. The mines worked an 11-hour fortnight and every other Monday was an extra day off. This was known as the playing Monday. In revival, the playing Monday was given over entirely to worship. Crowds could be heard simply walking along the street, singing and praising God. And when most of the Ross Silver Band were converted, they took to playing hymns in the open air. Mothers would be up at dawn, and when their husbands left for work, they completed the housework early, saw the children off to school, and then went to the chapel to worship. This was happening all over the town. Yet though the men spent hours in the chapels after a full day of work, no one appeared to be tired. Quote, there was life in the air. And people seemed to be physically as well as spiritually revived. The effect of the revival on the unconverted was amazing. 
Hundreds were saved, and it seems as though the whole town was coming to church. People gave up drinking and smoking, and tobacco pouches and pipes were placed on the big pew in the front of the church as a mark of a changed life. The terror of the Lord had fallen on the whole town. Within a few weeks, many drunkards were afraid to come out of their homes or go into the public houses, into the bars, which were being forced to close throughout 1905 because of a lack of customers. Fighting was a popular sport before the revival, and William Price, a well-known fighter in the town, was converted. He had never been to chapel before, and after his conversion, he was so full of joy that he reproached the Christians by asking, Why didn't you tell me, my friends, that it was like this? Another fighter, Levi Jarvis, was the terror of the town. He was opposed to the work of God, but at the same time was terrified of it. He was afraid to go to work and once there was afraid to come home again in case he got converted. He could not sleep at night and went off his food. Levi Jarvis knew that people were praying for him and this only made him more afraid. His wife feared that he would go out of his mind. One day, R.B. Jones came to visit the home to reassure his wife that they were praying. When Jarvis learned of this, he swallowed his meal and fled to the mountains to get away from the revival. But God eventually saved him. And the congregation watched the great fighter raise his hands in the air as a mark of his surrender to the Lord. Levi Jarvis, the fighter, became like a lamb. He was in his 40s when he was saved and he had turned 80 when he died. But he never went back on his surrender to Christ. Life changed in the pits also, in the mines, and men would meet for prayer before the day's work commenced. The spirit was in the mines. It was pleasant. It was as pleasant to go to work as it was to go to a place of worship. There were no tensions or disputes among the miners, and output was 100%. Everyone was talking about being saved, and men were even saved down the mines. Even those who were not saved were deeply affected. Ponies were used to haul the coal trucks at that time, and two men were employed to look after them. There could be as many as 90 or more ponies in one pit, and it was long and hard work caring for the harness and feeding and grooming the ponies. After the revival came, a foreman found the man in charge of the ponies in a terrible state of mind, afraid that he would lose his job. The boys were each looking after his own pony, and there was nothing for the man to do. In other words, they started actually doing their jobs. Another account of this tells us that the ponies for a while didn't know what to do because no one was cursing at them anymore when they gave them direction. As the news of the revival spread, people traveled from all over Wales to see what was happening. They came from other parts of Britain and from the U.S., Canada, Australia, and elsewhere. Many of these visitors carried the revival away with them to distant parts of the world. Such was the presence of God that it could be felt by visitors as soon as they entered the town and even beyond this. Powell Perry comments, The presence of God was everywhere. There were no special meetings for young people. They all came to the adult meetings. Even children of six and eight years of age were talking about Jesus, even though they weren't all converted. And teachers would weep as they overheard the children's conversations. The effects of this revival continued right up until the Great War in 1914. Prayer meetings were changed and revitalized, and the experience meeting where the Christians shared their testimony of God's goodness proved a means of grace to many. For those who experience this great outpouring of the Spirit, there is a real sense in which revival is never lost. John Powell Perry could claim 70 years later at the age of 86, I still have it now. In other words, I still have that zeal now, 70 years later. Because 
God's people asked him to pour out streams on dry ground. They asked him to revive them again. And God answered in amazing ways in that town and spreading all over the world as missionaries came and saw what was happening and began to pray. Revivals happened in India and Korea and China and Britain and the U.S. all as a result of the example of what began in this little town in Wales. Now, fourthly, this prayer in Psalm 85.6 is simply a prayer. It's a prayer. And I want to close by, by making that clear. Psalm 85 is not a sermon telling people what they ought to do. It's a prayer asking God to do what he can do. In other words, the psalmist is not asking, and I'm not asking, for people to get busy for people to get their act together, for people to start getting to church one hour early, for people to start forcing themselves or their kids to talk more about Jesus. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. What the psalmist is doing is praying. He's asking God to do all those things for us and in us. And he reinforces that by saying, will you not yourself revive us again? As though to make sure that We get it twice. Will you not revive us again? No, no, no. Let me rephrase it. Will you yourself revive us again? He wants us to know this is is God's work. Habakkuk the prophet says something similar in Habakkuk 3 verse 2. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. So this sermon is not intended to be kind of a motivational speech to get you to do more. Is not intended to, to put a guilt trip on you. This sermon is simply to urge you to pray with the psalmist. Oh Lord, do what we can't do. Do what we haven't done. Will you not yourself revive us? This sermon is simply meant to whet your appetite for God to do something amazing and to pray in faith and with persistence that He would. Usually in the bulletin, in fact, today in the bulletin, there's a little question that you can think about and discuss at home. And the question in today's bulletin was for a sermon that I thought I was going to preach and that I didn't preach this morning. So you can scrap that or save it for next week, maybe. But the sermon question today, the application question today would simply be this. Are you willing to pray fervently, earnestly, consistently, Lord, will you not do what we can't do? Will you not breathe new life into us? Will you not yourself revive us again? Do it again. And I don't think you so much need to converse or or think about that today as much as to do it. And so to give you an application point, this is not a a have-to, this is not a Guilt trip, this is not a we're going to keep a list of who does and who doesn't. But to give you an opportunity to practice what the psalmist is asking God and to do it yourself. We're going to, uh, I'm going to be here at 630 tonight with whoever else would like to come. We're going to meet in that back room. And if you're saying, I want to pray like this, I want to begin praying like this, I want to plead with God, I want to beg with God, then the prayer room, 630 tonight, I will be here And anyone else who would like to come will be here and we will pray very simply, O Lord, will you not yourself revive us again?